If you want to turn in your Bibles to uh, Revelation uh, 12, excuse me, uh, chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, you can do that now. The words are going to be on the screen. I'd love to bring back, if I could, somehow, the, the habit we used to have of bringing our, our actual Bibles to church. So if you I want to encourage you to do that. If you got one of these laying around, I know everybody has them on their phone now or on your iPad, which is fine too, but I don't know. For me, there's something about being able to hold this thing and see everything. I don't know. I'm weird. All right. Um, let's read. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start out reading this passage. I'm going to do a little more teaching rather than, uh, more, more teaching than preaching today. So it's a little different, it, it, but just bear with me. So let's read this passage together. I'll, I'll read it for us. Revelation 2 verses 12 to 17. We're continuing our series on the letters that Jesus is uh, saying to the seven churches. So these are the words of Jesus. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny the fa- my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Heavenly Father, we pray for wisdom and guidance as we look uh, to this passage, which has some very obvious application and meaning to it, but yet also has some things in it that we're going to have to dig a little bit deeper Lord, help us to know the truth of your word. Help us to believe it. Give us the faith to believe that you've given us this word to exalt yourself, to reveal to us our sinfulness, but also to reveal to us your Savior, Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. So... um, there are two main points that Jesus is making in this particular letter to the church at Pergamum. First, Jesus lauds them for standing firm in the face of persecution. And second, Jesus tells them to stop believing in false teaching. The false teaching that was leading and seeping into the Pergamum church was uh, leading to idolatry and sexual immorality. And these are some pretty serious uh, things that they were doing that were opposing God. And so it's obvious that Jesus is really calling them out on it. So because this passage is mainly about false teaching, I want to take the opportunity not to just expose the false teaching in, uh, Pergam- in the Pergamum church, but I want to teach you, okay, I want to teach you how to spot false teaching so that you can avoid it and so that you can learn how to correctly understand and interpret the scriptures for yourself. So first we're going to answer three questions um, 
about false teaching, and then we're going to walk through the passage. So we are going to get and walk through the passage verse by verse and see how we can correctly interpret what's going on here uh, in this letter uh, in Revelation from Jesus. Because uh, I, know, I know that our culture doesn't really understand it this way sometimes, but the, the truth is that there is a correct way to read and, and study the Bible, and there is a there's a wrong way to read and study the Bible. And that's kind of what Jesus is getting at here, right? Because he's calling out false teaching. So we know there must be a correct way to understand it and an incorrect way to understand it. And it's my job to help you understand the correct way. So I'm going to do my best this morning. So let's real quick, um, what is false teaching? False teachings are beliefs that are contrary to the orthodox teachings of the Bible. Or we could say... Uh, false teachings are any belief that adds to, takes away from, contradicts, or nullifies the teaching of, teachings of the Bible, okay? So in Pergamum, uh, the false teaching included idol worship, okay, uh, and appeasing the gods through sexual immorality. Um, we'll get to, to talk about that in, in a minute. Some other examples in church history of of sort of famous false teachings that, that sort of go out there is one, and there's a lot of them, right? But I'll just, a couple of them. Believing that Jesus was not fully God and fully man. So there was a lot of that going on um, in church history. Uh, so, but rather Jesus was just an angel or simply a good moral teacher. So um, there were some heresies that floated around and continue to do that, that don't believe that Jesus was fully God and fully man, which we do believe that Jesus was fully God and fully man. Um, another false teaching is believing that salvation is a combination of God's mercy and our good works, okay? Um, and that's just not how it works. Uh, salvation comes through faith alone in Christ alone based on the work uh, and the atonement that Christ did for us on the cross, okay? Um, and then a, a third one might be uh, believing that there are many gods, uh, not one true God, okay? So th- that's a popular false teaching, that there are many gods, uh, and that, that we, they wouldn't say that there's one true God. And we believe that there's one true God, and all other so-called gods are false. So, um, so these are just uh, a couple things about what is false teaching. What makes us susceptible f- to false teaching? What makes us, uh, you know, susceptible to that? Well, um, to put it crassly, money, sex, and power, right? Okay, those, those three things alone uh, cause us to be susceptible to false teaching, uh, especially if you're honest with yourselves. Our sinful nature allures us, pulling us away from true biblical teaching by tempting us with things that we crave, things that we crave. We crave power, okay? We want to be in control. Uh, we love self-help theology, positive thinking. We want our own free will to be over God's absolute will, right? And at our core, we really want to be our own gods at our core. We also crave money and the material possessions that money can buy. So we can be drawn to false teachings surrounding health and wealth and prosperity. These, thing, these teachings offer uh, physical, material, and financial blessings to those who do certain things. So we crave money, but we also crave sex, 
I know it sounds a bit crass, but it's true, right? I mean, that's just our culture. You, can't, you, cannot, you cannot open a, a webpage or, or turn on the TV or look at the, You can't do anything without seeing some sort of um, thing revolved around um, sexuality. Uh, there, there are lots of false teachings in this area. Some will falsely teach that the Bible does not say homosexuality or sex outside of marriage is wrong. Whereas the Bible explicitly teaches that these practices are sinful. Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, Hebrews 13, Colossians 3, 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians 7, and just to name a few, it goes on and on. So there's, there's a way in which people have sort of, they, they want the Bible to, uh, they want to understand the Bible uh, and so that they begin to create the Bible to what they want it to be, right? So here, here's the problem with a lot of, a lot of times people do this, and, and, and I, I have to protect myself from doing it myself because I, I'm kind of apt to this. But here's, here's how it goes. We interpret the Bible according to culture. So what we do is we take our own culture that we're living in right now and today, everything that's going on, and then we try to interpret the Bible. And that's backwards. What we need to do is we take the Bible, we take the scriptures, and then we interpret the culture. Okay? Then we interpret the culture. The Bible is going to tell us what's right or wrong. Our culture does not dictate what's right or wrong. Okay? Because we believe the Bible to be absolute truth. Okay? So if someone is using religious teaching, right, especially utilizing the Bible to offer us these things that we crave, then we're liable to be receptive of them because they hit us in places where we're most vulnerable. Right? Satan wants to take our vulnerabilities and expose them and utilize them, right? Not for our benefit, but for his own benefit and to draw us away from God. So, thirdly, how do we avoid false teaching? Well, in order to know what is false, we have to know even better what is true. Even better what is true. So, maybe you know this or not, but um, the agency that's in charge of uh, investigating counterfeit money is actually the Secret Service. And so the way that they, the Secret Service agents are taught to identify uh, counterfeit money is not to study all the counterfeit money that's out there, but to study the real thing, to study the actual genuine uh, dollar bills, you know, the bills that we have. They know w- exactly what those look like. And so when a false counterfeit bill pops up, they know that it's false because they know it's true, okay? And so we have to study the Bible and to know what's true to understand what's false and what's counterfeit. And I think studying, we have to study the Bible, not just read it, but study it. Now, reading it is great. And I, I, I applaud everyone that's doing a Bible reading plan this, this year. I'm doing one. But I, I want to encourage you to go past just the, the reading of your Bibles to really digging in and studying them. So, but how do we know if our interpretation of the Bible is true? That's a great question, right? Why should I trust your interpretation over someone else's interpretation? Okay, this is, this is very common in, in, in trying to understand um, the Bible and how different churches understand uh, their interpretation. So, what makes one thing better than another? So, well, first, there are three things we need to believe about the character of, of, of the Bible, Okay. Uh, if someone is trying to correctly interpret the Bible, but does not believe these three things, then they're off to a really bad start, okay? These things are really important. 
First of all, what we believe in terms of the character of the Bible is that, one, it is inspired, okay? Now, I don't mean like it's inspiring, like the message is inspiring. Yes, it is sometimes inspiring. But I'm talking about inspiration that says, 2 Timothy 3.16, I think we have a slide for that one. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for, for, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So leave that up there. All scripture is breathed out by God. That's what we mean by inspired. That God, by his Holy Spirit, spoke his word through the Spirit, into the authors of Scripture to write down what he wanted them to write. Now, he did use their, uh, their circumstances, their historical context. He even used, God even used their emotions to write down what he wanted to write down. But we believe that it was breathed out by God, okay? It was inspired. Obviously, it takes faith to believe that the Bible is inspired. And if you don't have a genuine saving faith in Jesus, then, and, and that you are endowed with the Holy Spirit, then I think you're not going to really be able to understand and interpret the Bible correctly. Secondly, the Bible is inerrant. Uh, the Bible, this means that the Bible is completely truthful and accurate in every respect about all that it teaches and affirms. So when the Bible teaches about something, it is without error in that teaching. Now, the Bible is not a comprehensive encyclopedia of everything that has ever happened or or. Uh, everything biological or physiological or physics. It's not, a, it's not a complete comprehensive book about everything in the whole entire world. But what the things that it does teach us, it is completely truthful and accurate. Thirdly, the Bible is infallible, meaning the Bible is utterly and completely trustworthy and will not lead to deception or error. God does not want to deceive you. God wants you to know him for who he really is in the most honest way. So, therefore, we believe that the Bible is the final authority on all matters of faith and life. That's what we believe here at Spring Run. Now, along with that, you've got to bear with me here, um, but I think it's really important, okay? Along with those three things, there are some rules that scholars have come up with that will help us interpret the scriptures. I'm going to run through these real quick. Here, here's a question you may have been asked before or not, or maybe you want to ask it of our church. Do you read the Bible literally? Do you read the Bible literally? Okay? And the answer is yes, but I read it according to its literary construction. So follow me here for a second. Rule number one is that the Bible should be interpreted according to its literal sense. According to its literal sense. This means we should look at the natural meaning of the text and look at the grammar, the speech, uh, the syntax, the context of the text. We also need to understand that the Bible is written, uh, as the Bible is written, it contains different genres of literature. Okay, going back to seventh grade English. Um, genre of literatures like history, poetry, prophecy, wisdom literature, parables, letters, okay, and, and some other genres. That, and so the Bible makes up these 
has all these different genres of literature within it. So when you go to read, study, and interpret the Bible, whatever passage you're in, you need to understand what type of literature you're reading and studying in order to do it correctly. You're not going to... um, you're not going to interpret a historical passage, a, a passage that tells us about a, a story in history, say like David and Goliath. You're not going to interpret that the same way that you would um, uh, a wisdom literature, okay? Because there are different types of genres. There's different ways of, of, of learning and understanding those things. You know, train up a child in the way he should go. That's not a promise. It's wisdom literature. It's a principle, we should train up our children in the way that they should go so that they will not uh, depart from the path, right? But it's not a promise, it's a principle. So we, we have to do that when we, we have to understand the Bible according to its genre and so forth. So that's the first. Second one is this. The Bible should be interpreted according to its grammatical constructions and historical context. We cannot take it out of context. So grammatical meaning how words are used and taken. And we all know words change meaning over time. What did a particular word mean then when it was written, right, as opposed to now? And how do we understand it? Historical meaning the setting and situation of the time books were written, who wrote it, and under what circumstances, and so on. We need to try and understand the original meaning of the text before we begin to apply it to today. It's a major issue that a lot of uh, folks miss. They just pick up their Bible and they try to immediately make uh, an application to it. And what I always tell folks is, first you've got to find out the original meaning of it before you can understand how to correctly apply it to today. Okay? Rule number three, Scripture is to interpret Scripture. Okay? Simply put, how does the rest of the Bible interpret this passage or how um, is it connected to this passage? And we're going to see that there are other parts of the Bible that are connected to this passage that we're talking about. And then finally, the fourth rule is we need to find the fallen human condition, I'll explain that, and God's promise of redemption. So we need to, it, every passage of the Bible is going to reveal some area of our fallen condition as sinful people. But it's also going to uh, reveal, in some way, God's promise of redemption through Jesus. So we look for an area of sin that has infiltrated humanity. Where does God apply grace in this passage? Um, We need to show how the death and resurrection of Jesus give us hope uh, in this particular passage. So those three characteristics, okay, inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility, and then these rules of interpretation are going to allow us to be honest when we go to read the Bible and understand it and interpret it. That's what we want to be. We want to be honest with the text. This is God's word. It is the most important book that has ever been written, that will ever be written, okay? We need to deal with this correctly. We need to handle it with care, not selfishly and for our own gain, but the way God wants us to read it and the way God wants us to understand it. So here's what I want to do. We're going to go through this passage in the next few minutes. I promise I'm not going to go long. And we're going to kind of see how this, how this happens. So first of all, let's look at the context. Remember, we're in the book of Revelation. 
which is what kind of genre of literature? It's apocalyptic prophecy. So a lot of the book of Revelation is not just talking about what was going on at that particular time, but it's, it's also pointing to what's going to happen, okay? And so you have to figure out where, you know, what's going on? How is it, how is it pertaining to now and later? And, and how do we understand it that way? So, uh, and again, context of the passage. This is Jesus writing seven letters to seven churches uh, in the Roman world to help encourage them, right, uh, in their faith, uh, to help them uh, really persevere through persecution. So let's throw up that picture. We've been looking at this picture the last two weeks. Uh, so this is, the, this is a picture of the seven churches. And um, we've looked at Ephesus, which is on the coast, Last week we looked at Smyrna, which again is on the coast in that little cove area. And then Pergamum is all the way at the top and it's inland. I think it's about 15 miles inland. Okay, so um, that's where it is geographically. And so if Ephesus and Smyrna were cities of central commerce because they were on the coast, then Pergamum was a city of central pagan religion was one of the things it was known for. Obviously commerce because it was a huge city. But also, it was a, a center for pagan religion. So these, there were four main gods with statues that were worshipped in Pergamum. Okay, Zeus, Athena, Dionysus, and Asclepius. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, we also know that because Rome ruled the world at this time, that emperor worship uh, ruled the day, and anyone who lived within the Roman Empire was expected to worship the emperor. So when Christians refused to worship the emperor and only pledged allegiance to Jesus Christ, they were persecuted and some to the point of execution. Okay, we talked a little bit about that last week. We see it again in this passage. Antipas was executed for his faith. So let's take a look at the content. Okay, let's look at verse 12. Pull that up there. Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword, okay? So Jesus, again, is identifying himself, and he's saying, uh, talking about his sharp, two-edged sword. What is that? What, what is he talking about? He's talking about his word, okay? Uh, his truth, what he speaks. That's what he's talking about. This harkens us back to John 1, where Jesus is called what? The Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God, right? The Word was made flesh. Jesus is the Word. We would also be right to remember the phrase two-edged sword from another passage back in Hebrews 4.12, which says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Okay? So you see, the scripture is beginning to interpret itself. It's connected. Okay? So we can understand what Jesus is talking about in Revelation by going back to Hebrews 4.12. Okay? So Jesus sets himself up. I'm the word. I'm the one who has the authority to speak these words to you. Okay? Verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name 
And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Okay? So what Jesus is doing here is he's commending the Christians in Pergamum who have remained faithful in the midst of a hostile culture. We talked about that last week. Where Satan lives. Okay? So this strange phrase, where Satan lives. And... um, the phrase is simply, uh, this phrase where Satan lives and about Satan's throne is simply pointing to the pagan worship in per- Pergamum and its prevalence in that city, okay? So there was, there was a lot of pagan worship going on and Jesus says it's like where Satan lives. That's, what, that's how bad it was. So he's pointing that out. And he's also commending them for their faithfulness. All right, verse 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you. Now remember, Jesus, Jesus does this. So we're looking at seven letters. Five of the seven have this sort of um, rhythm to it where he'll, he'll commend them for one thing, but then he's going to call them out on something else. And this is where he calls them out. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. All right, so, um, and then he goes on in 15, uh, yeah, 15, so also, so also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So, in general, Jesus is exposing the fact that some of those in the church have been teaching false doctrine, which has led to idol worship and sexual immorality. Specifically, though, Jesus is pointing to false teaching that was connected to this, this uh, false uh, prophet named Balaam back when Israel was occupying the promised land. Again, the scripture is connected. We're seeing scripture interpret scripture here. Okay? If, you, if you're not paying attention, I could come up with all kinds of things and tell you what this is. We don't, one of the things, it talks about the Nicolaitans. We're not even sure. Scholars are not really sure what the Nicolaitan uh, false teaching was all about. But it, if you didn't know that, I, I, could create, I could create my own false teaching and, and, and try to get you to, to do something. Like, so you have to be careful with this stuff. But the teaching of Balaam goes back to, um, we could see the stories in Numbers, the book of Numbers, uh, chapters 22 to 26. And simplest way uh, to put it and summarize it is that as the Israelites were taking over the promised land back then, that's what was going on, God had told them not to marry the people who were there, who were not Israelites, because they would lead the Israelites to worship their own false gods. But what happened was this guy named Balaam, who was working with the Moabites, tried to subvert the Israelites through idolatry and sexual immorality. Specifically, he was trying to get the Moabite women to seduce the Israelite men. That's what he was trying to do. Uh, And more than likely, the reference to the Nicolaitans, again, uh, was possibly pointing to similar false teaching, although we don't know for sure, okay? So again, you come across something in Scripture, you know for sure what's going on, we can talk about it, and we can explain it. You come across something in Scripture, we're not quite sure what it is, we kind of have to leave it there, okay? And that's okay. 
So it seems within the church at Pergamum, there were people who were trying to subvert the church by getting them to involve, to involve themselves in worshiping other gods and to involve themselves in sexual immorality, okay? All right, verse 16. Therefore, Jesus says, the answer to all this, to your issue, is repentance. Repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Remember, here comes that sword again, which is Jesus' truth. He's going to come back at them, okay? Not to cut them into pieces with a literal sword, okay? But to speak his truth and, and, and to show them uh, the error of their ways, okay? He tells them in the most straightforward way what they need to do, repent, And repentance is an acknowledgement that you have turned away from God's holy decree, his laws and commands, and chosen to believe and act in a way that is offensive to him. And God will not tolerate this rebellion. Therefore, our only choice when we examine our hearts and find them to be sinful, our only choice is to turn back, to turn away from our sinfulness, in our rebellious ways, to have a change of heart and to turn in faith to Jesus. So repentance is not only turning away from, but it's turning to Jesus in faith, okay? Who is the only true God, the only one who can save us. Otherwise, we face the wrath of God, which, of course, you will not be able to survive, okay? So again, Jesus uses this picture of the sword of his mouth. He's the word made flesh, God speaks to us through Jesus and his words, but also his character, his attributes, and his actions. Okay? All right, let's finish this up. Verse 17. He who has an ear. So Jesus has said these words, and now he's sort of summarizing and concluding his little letter. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen. This is what God's... Jesus is saying, listen. Pay attention. To the one who conquers... I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, I gotta be honest. I read this verse. I'm like, what in the world? Hidden manna? A white stone? I've never, I mean, I've heard of manna before, but hidden manna? Lord, what is going on here, okay? So, what do you do? What do you do when you're studying the Bible and you come across something like this and you're like, I don't know what this means. I have no idea. Well, you go to a commentary. <laughs> okay? A trusted commentary. One that's written by a, a trusted publisher that um, is not apt to deceive or uh, that has the same beliefs that you do and understands these rules of interpretation and the infallibility, inerrancy, and uh, trustworthiness of the scripture. So um, I'm going to read to you real quick from the Crossway Expository Commentary how they explain this this verse, because I had no idea, and they put it in great words. The words of the risen Christ are also the words of the Spirit of God, containing an earnest message for all the churches. John, the writer of, of Revelation, concludes with a promise to the one who conquers, okay, and that's a theme throughout Revelation, that we are more than conquerors, that we, we, we are, we're persevering, Jesus conquering for us, and we're part of that. This is both a promise and a demand for all must overcome and triumph and receive the reward. The language is highly symbolic and hard to pin down. 
These guys even had a hard time with it, right? Jesus will give hidden manna to those who conquer. So they say, manna described as bread from heaven, which we know, Psalm 78, and also obviously from, um, was given as sustenance to Israel in the wilderness, hearkening back to Exodus 16. It also seems as though manna was designated as a heavenly reward, the eschatological reward, eschatology just means the end time, reward for the faithful. The manna now hidden will be given at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's how it's explaining what's going on. The white stone is another way of describing the same reward. Those who triumphed in games were given white stones for entry into the celebratory banquets. Such stones were used also in court cases to signify acquittal. Those who overcome will enjoy the messianic banquet and stand clean before God forever. They will also be given a new name inscribed upon the stone. The new name may include Jesus' name, ensuring entrance into the heavenly city. The ancient world, to, to know, in the ancient world, to know someone's name meant power over that person. Significantly, no one knows the name of Jesus, the one who rides on a white horse to conquer evil. We're, gonna, we're not going to get there, but that's from Revelation 19. When Zion is vindicated by the Lord before the nations, she will be called a new name, Isaiah 62. Meaning, she will be vindicated, saved, and given a new identity. The manna, the white stone, and the new name are all various ways of depicting the heavenly reward, the eternal life to be granted to believers. That's what it means. It's all connected, right? So, um, Sometimes it's easier than others to understand some of these things, especially in the book of Revelation, which can be hard to pin down, okay? So what we've just done, as we've walked through this, what we've just done is to take these divinely inspired words of Scripture and try to accurately interpret them according to fundamental principles of hermeneutics, which are just the study of um, interpretation, We've not tried to add to, take away from, or intentionally deceive anyone in the process. And if our interpretation were found to be out of accord with orthodox teachings, then we would need to pause and re-examine the passage again. So, you might ask, what is the application here? How do I apply this to my life? Well, I wasn't trying to trick you, but we just did it. We just did the application. The application in regards to false teaching is to learn how to correctly handle and interpret the scriptures. Okay? For yourself. And that's what we just did. God's truth is found in the scriptures. It is life-giving. It is life-transforming. There's no other book that lives and breathes life into your heart like the Bible. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Live in the scriptures. Bathe in it. Saturate your soul with it. Meditate on it. Memorize it. Renew your mind with it. Encourage your heart with it. Immerse yourself in its wisdom. Look at the clarity it brings to the majesty of God. See the beauty of Jesus in it. Listen to the counsel of the Holy Spirit in it. Heed its voice that brings the dead back to life and secures your eternal comfort in heaven.
Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the words that you spoke to the church in Pergamum, um, commending them with their faithfulness in times of hostility and persecution. We pray that we will put our faith in you in the same times in which we live in a very hostile culture. And Lord, we heed the words of um, not falling into to believing false teaching. Thank you that you've given us um, guidelines from your word to, to teach us how to understand it correctly. I thank you, that Lord, that you give us your Holy Spirit, that as we read your scriptures, your Holy Spirit works in our hearts with our spirit to understand them. We are truly grateful for this word, Lord, and I pray that we will continue to live in it each day. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.